All right, welcome everybody. Thanks for coming. Boy, a tough act to follow watching Spaceballs <laughs> right into a Swift Erasure Code talk. All right, so I'm Paul Luce. I'm a software engineer at Intel. I've uh, been there a little over 20 years, 21 years. Forgot a year there for a second. I'm focusing mainly on, on uh, storage um, and storage products. And for the last year and a half or so, I've been pretty heavily involved in the, uh, in the Swift project, working on storage policies and now uh, Erasure Codes. And uh, I'll let Kevin introduce himself, and then we'll get started. Uh, so I'm Kevin Greenan. I'm an engineer at Box. Um, what brings me to the Swift community is specifically erasure codes. Um, I've spent, uh, geez, may maybe like the last eight or nine years working in erasure codes, a bunch of that in research. Um, and I contribute to a handful of open source projects around erasure codes. And one of the things that I wanted to do was basically provide a uh, Python library so Swift can take advantage of some of the lower level C libraries. So a lot of where I come in is basically figuring out what that library needed to look like and also helping the Swift community figure out what the, ar you know, the architecture should look like. But for the most part, I'm kind of the, the library guy. Um, so what, you know, what I'll be going through today is kind of a semi-tutorial of erasure codes and uh, just a quick little advertisement for some of the libraries. Okay, so we don't have a remote clicker working, so Kevin is gonna be my clicker, and I'll be his. So this should be fun, because everything is animated here, so we'll see how in sync we can stay. So go ahead, Kevin. Okay, so the agenda, I mean, the good news is we've got a ton of really cool material, um, and the bad news is we've got a ton of really cool material. Um, it'd be tough to get through all this, uh, but we are going to do our best, and we'll certainly take questions and answers uh, either during the talk or, or at the end. Um, but the way we're going to proceed here is I'm going to run through an, an overview of Swift and give everybody just sort of on the level playing field, I mean, super brief overview. There's plenty of other um, talks this week and resources if you want to learn more about Swift. And I'm going to focus a little bit on storage policies, and you'll see why, because it's uh, a fundamental building block that got us the ability to do erasure code. Um, and then Kevin's going to go through the erasure code section, and this is really where the title comes from, taking the mystery out of erasure codes. So you're going to learn a lot more about erasure codes than, um, than maybe you wanted to know, um, but some really interesting stuff from, from Kevin. And then I'll wrap up uh, with a, uh, an overview of what the implementation looks like in Swift at a high level. Uh, we've got a, a design session on Friday. If anyone wants to um, find out a little bit more about the details, what we're doing, when we're going to have it done, uh, all that kind of stuff, we'll cover that at the end. Okay, so Swift, everybody knows Swift. Um, I'm assuming that everybody knows it's one of the core um, first two projects uh, in OpenStack. Um, truly a community project. Um, it's a 100% uh, uh, Python, and the reason I mentioned that, I think everybody probably already knows that, is because we have had a few questions as we've been working on this uh, about the performance of Python with erasure codes. So um, Kevin will talk about that in, in his talk. The actual erasure code implementation, the math, is not in Python. Um, we're actually relying on one of the external libraries that Kevin and some of the other community members have, um, have put together. Go ahead, Kevin. Um, a really good, vibrant community. It's been uh, just a pleasure working with these folks. Uh, Kevin and I are really representing the work of a lot of people on the Erasure Code work. It's not um, simply the two of us. A lot of folks from SwiftStack, um, a couple of my colleagues from Intel, from Red Hat, IBM, HP, Rackspace, right? The list goes, goes on and on. Everybody's really contributing to this. It's been a, a fantastic um, project. And then uh, another common question besides the Python versus C thing is um, related to this timeline and why I put this on here. You can see we started talking about erasure code a long time ago. 
Um, and I've been asked a couple of times, you know, geez, what the hell's taking so long? You guys are still talking about erasure codes? Um, well, this timeline, um, I won't walk through the whole thing, but you can see sort of the middle, we took a diversion from our erasure code efforts that we started talking about back in Havana timeframe for this little thing called storage policies that ended up taking, you know, good eight or nine months of, of lots of collaboration, lots of effort um, as a prerequisite to get the EC work done. So it's only been the last few months that we've really been able to refocus resources um, on the actual erasure code implementation. Okay, so um, some of the key points that you need to understand about SWIFT to really get what we're talking about with policies and erasure code um, is, is what I'm gonna cover here on the next couple of slides. Again, it's not intended to be a SWIFT 101 type class. There's way too much to get into uh, for the uh, short amount of time we have. Um, but one of, the, one of the key points in understanding is the, is the SWIFT container model, right? Everything is grouped by uh, model of container. So we have like attributes of, of common objects associated with a container. Um, I think everybody also knows the RESTful interface, right? There's nothing uh, that we're doing different or new around uh, erasure code or policies that, that really changes into the API. And built upon standard hardware um, and highly scalable, right? Also eventually consistent, right, with a focus on uh, availability and partition tolerance. So, right, so those that are familiar with the, um, the CAP theorem and the really can appreciate what we're doing there. So uh, also what SWIFT is not is kind of a good thing to point out as, as people sort of try to figure out exactly what this is, especially in, the, in this day and age of you know, unified storage systems and software-defined storage and all that kind of stuff. Um, SWIFT was not set out to be um, everything to everybody. It is a very focused project with a very focused goal of object storage in an eventually consistent model. So it's not a distributed file system. It is not a relational database. It is not a NoSQL data store. And it is not a block storage system, nor does it want to be any of these things, right? It is an object storage system um, set out to be the very best object storage that it can be. Okay, so let's jump into the, uh, the, the really sort of 50,000 foot um, view of the software architecture. Um, and I'm putting these slides up here to give you sort of an idea of what the components look like, the breakdown, and then at the end, I'll sort of touch on um, what we're touching and what we're modifying to get erasure code bolted into this thing efficiently. So starting at the top here, we've got the, the proxy layer. And at the proxy layer, at the, the, the proxy servers, uh, you can see the sort of the bluish colored stuff is the, um, the non-SWIFT core stuff. Everything is a whiskey model. Um, and then the whiskey application running the proxy server you can see up there is our, uh, is our proxy application. And it's really broken down. Um, there, there's a few more classes in this, but these are you know, obviously the big primary main ones. An object controller, an account controller, and a container controller. And each one of these has probably fairly obvious responsibilities um, to, to manage the type of object um, that uh, they're described by. And then there's a series of helper functions and some other things. But that's kind of what the, um, the proxy looks like at the high level. Now, down here on the bottom, we've got the, uh, the storage nodes. And there are multiple applications that run on the storage node. And there's different ways you can slice and dice and, and distribute these things. And we sometimes call these servers. Um, but um, I've got them listed here just as whiskey applications. You can see the first one is the, the Swift object whiskey application, which is, you might guess, responsible for management and placement of objects. Some of the main classes in there are the replicator, the auditor, the expirer, and the updater. Then moving on down the list, um, the account application um, has responsibilities very similar to what the object does, but, but um, for account databases. So it has a replicator, auditor, uh, a reaper, and some helper functions. And then uh, uh, on down to the container uh, with very similar functions to what uh, the uh, account application runs. 
Okay, so now I'm going to jump into storage policies a little bit. This is actually a slide from a talk that John Dickinson and I gave in Atlanta. So if you're curious more about um, the details of storage policies, what we did and why, uh, that's still online. I encourage you to go Google that and find it pretty quick and see what it's about. Um, but I wanted, to, I wanted to explain sort of why we did it, because it wasn't just for erasure codes, right? It's, uh, it's really fundamentally buys us a lot more than erasure code, but was a prerequisite for doing the EC work. So why do we do this? So without erasure codes, uh, for, for one reason, you could pick a different replication level for your cluster, but it applied to the whole cluster. So if you had needs to do um, lower durability for some applications and higher durability for others, uh, you pretty much had to deploy multiple clusters if you wanted to do that before um, policies. Uh, another thing that, uh, that we added erasure codes for was to provide the ability to differentiate different hardware or software services within your cluster and bubble them up so the application can see them and take advantage of them, right? So if you have certain nodes in your cluster that have special capabilities or higher performance, without the policies work, um, those were kind of lost in the, in the fray, right? It was difficult to, uh, uh, to really exploit those. And then finally, the one most relevant to this talk, um, no real easy extensibility framework for adding things like erasure code, right? So Swift, um, fundamentally, really everything around Swift is built around replication and making copies of the same object and the assumption that the same object is everywhere. Um, and that's all very, very different with erasure code. So we needed, uh, we needed some way to compartmentalize and to extend and to do something different, right, beyond um, just making copies of things. So one, one really big fundamental thing in understanding how policies work um, and therefore how erasure code is bolted in um, is to have some better understanding of what the ring is. Um, and the ring is, uh, it, I'm not gonna do it justice in one slide, but I did wanna give folks an idea of kind of how it works, what it is. Um, so we've got a, a picture of a ring here. This is uh, partitioned into what we call partitions, uh, which not to be confused with disk partitions, right? These are sections of the, of the namespace, of the NBA5 namespace. Um, the, the ring is it's actually a, a data structure that's isolated, separated, and maintained um, outside of the operation of the Swift cluster, right? So there's a set of tools that are provided that you build this data structure and then distribute it amongst the nodes in the cluster so everybody has a, a common view of where things are supposed to go um, and what the rules are for placement. But the way it works here, as you can see, we feed um, a URL, the complete URL, uh, to the object or the account of the container that you're trying to reference. We feed that into an MD5 and that spits out an index that we use to get into a particular partition in the ring. And the ring is effectively this, this big straight data structure with two tables um, and, and a couple other miscellaneous elements. But the, the tables are, are actually pretty easy to understand. There's one table over here that's simply this long list of devices. And by devices, I mean hard drives, right? So every hard drive in the cluster is represented in this table. And then we've got um, this other really hard to pronounce name um, for a table um, that's really sort of the magic of the mapping. Um, so go ahead and click again there, Kevin. So when we get that index out of a partition, we use that to look up in this first table, um, and that gives us uh, a row in the table. And from that row, click again. I should like hit the button and you can see me hitting it, and then you can, <laughs> might work better. From, from that, we get a list of indices into our, uh, into our table of devices. And that's how we identify from an object name what are the relevant hard drives, right, regardless of where they're at in the cluster, because they all have IP addresses associated with them, that we go out and, and talk to for that. So this is, uh, this is sort of, like I said, the brief overview of it. And if we click one more time, you'll see the, the, the real magic here is, is what you put in this table, right? And there's, like I said, a whole set of tools that defines what goes into that table 
that, um, that has to do with the regions and zones and making sure that your fault tolerance is the way you want it and that you don't have a single point of failure, right? All that kind of good stuff, all of those are really separate from, you know, the basic concept of, of doing an MD5 hash to look up an index, right? That's where the real magic happens, right? And all that happens, like I said, offline with some tools that build this ring for you. Oh, well, excellent, thank you. <laughs> so, so what are policies then? Um, at the very simplest description, policies are multiple rings for objects, okay? So let's click a couple of times here and see if we can speed some of this up. So you can see here's some examples, right? Here's a ring for triple replication and it has, as you might expect, um, three locations. And when you get three locations, that means three copies. Here's a, a replicated ring, reduced replication with two locations, so you get two copies, right? That's what those things mean. Now here's where sort of the semantic change of what a definition of a location on the ring means. We introduce erasure codes, now we've got n locations and they no longer represent copies of the data. They now represent locations for fragments of the data, right? So we actually get to leverage, um, so far, 100% of the ring code. We haven't touched any of it to do EC work, right? Because we're just changing the definition of what it means to get an object location back from the ring. Second big piece of policies besides introducing the ability to have multiple uh, rings and having their locations mean something different um, semantically depending on the policy uh, is this new, this new one piece of metadata um, that is applied to the container. So that's why I had the container as sort of one of the key points um, to understand in, in, uh, uh, in this super quick Swift overview. This one new metadata um, tells the rest of the, the classes within uh, all of the code which object ring to use for all of the objects within that container. So now you can now, um, and since this is, this is out, I don't have to say, soon you will be able to, you actually can today, right? This was released uh, in the summer and is part of the Juno release. So you can have one container that everything you put in it is only double replicated and the application just specifies a different metadata tag, writes to a different container, and that one's just magically triple replicated. And then as soon as we get done with the EC work, same thing goes there. So it's very easy for an application to switch durability policies. In fact, once the container's created, it's completely transparent, right? You don't have to do anything. So if you're doing performance work, for example, and you wanna see what's the performance difference between triple replication and EC, you use your performance tool, create one container that's triple replicated, one that's EC, and run your tests, and just write to a different container and rerun your tests. And you've just changed from triple replication to EC just that easily. Okay, and then sort of putting it all together and we'll see another slide like this at the end where you'll see how the EC stuff works. This is just a simple triple replication example, um, also a little more sort of Swift 101 context here. Uh, let's go ahead and click through the animation here. You can see this is an example of a put. So an object comes through, hits the proxy. Proxy uses the object ring to look up the three locations, finds the three locations and sends the three copies out, uh, out into the, uh, the storage nodes. And then when the application wants to get it back, Right, the proxy does a lookup, it picks one of those three locations. There's a couple different rules we have for how that works depending on um, what the use case is. But it will retrieve one of those copies um, and shoot it on back up the, uh, to the application. Okay, so I'm gonna turn it over to Kevin now and uh, we'll go through the erasure code tutorial piece and then uh, we'll get back to Swift again. All right, I'm gonna be my own clicker. Oh, really? Just make it easier, yeah. Um, so you can I'll just get out of the way. Yeah. All right, so like I said, I'm kind of the, the token library guy um, on, on, a, on a few other projects as well, but um, uh, 
me and a, another guy, Tushar, who also works on some of the Swift stuff, um, basically created the Python library that Swift is going to be using for erasure coding. And like Paul had said, it's the, the only Python piece to the library is basically the, this, uh, the Python, the C API. Um, the, as I'll show later, the, the library is actually pluggable, and we support a few uh, C libraries today. One's JEraser, which is one I also work on. Um, another's ISA-L, which is Intel's uh, accelerated library. Um, and then it just has support if you, know, you want to plug in your favorite EC library, you can use it. Um, so basically what I'm going to do, I'm going to go and actually uh, give some background on Erasure code, just quick background. Um, and actually show an example, uh, encoding and decoding of what is basically the most ubiquitous Erasure code out today for storage, which is Reed Solomon. Um, and one of the goals I had for this was to sort of crack open the black box a little bit. And you know, if I get through to like two people, um, I think it would be a success for me because uh, you know I'm going to you know. I don't want to scare anyone away, but I'm going to go through some math, and I hope that it's at least presented in a way that's understandable. And for those of you who aren't super familiar with erasure codes, I also have some higher level stuff, so hopefully everyone kind of walks away from this with something. Um, so after I go through Reed Solomon, uh, you know, a, another big topic today in storage and erasure codes is minimizing reconstruction cost. And there's uh, you know, interesting classes of codes that actually let you do this that aren't necessarily Reed Solomon. So I'm going to go through a pretty simple example using an XOR-only code to kind of just you know, give you a taste of the kind of things you can get um, to reconstruct, uh, to minimize reconstruction costs. And at the end, I'm going to quickly just go through uh, a few of the libraries, two of the libraries Swift is using to implement erasure codes. So you know, erasure coding is not a, a new concept. It's been around for a really long time. Um, it, back in the 60s, a couple of guys uh, came up with Reed, Reed and Solomon, came up with Reed Solomon. Um, it was primarily used for network um, uh, reliability. Uh, and then eventually, you know, it ended up being used on mass storage devices such as disk drives and CDs. You know, it really wasn't until the late 80s and early 90s when RAID really, you know, became a bigger thing that erasure codes started to be used more, uh, you know, across multiple disks. So, you know, RAID 5 is an example of, uh, an, you know, a, an example of a scheme that uses Reed Solomon. RAID 6 is the same. And then there's a bunch of other codes other than Reed Solomon that are used for RAID 6. And recently, I'd say in the, uh, in the 2000s, um, and, and actually up until today, there's been a lot of focus on um, the, the so-called regenerating codes. And these are the codes that are you know, really good at minimizing reconstruction costs. So in like a setting where you have thousands of disks and you know, disk reconstructions are kind of the norm, you know, one of the primary goals of these codes is to minimize the amount of traffic you have to send over the network to, to re repair a failed drive. And you know, Reed Solomon is kind of the worst case for that because it can get pretty expensive uh, when you're reconstructing stuff. So I figure I'd start with terminology. Um, and hopefully, this would be the kind of thing that would be useful to people that maybe aren't as familiar with erasure codes. Um, most of the, these terms are actually lifted from um, some work Jim Hafner did uh, at IBM in the mid-2000s, I think it was. He, he kind of set, in, in a couple of his papers, had a, like, did a really good job of just sort of laying out terminology. Um, so I figured I'd just go through this really quick here. So what, what does erasure code do? Um, basically, all it really does is you take an object, you chop it up into k pieces. So th th we're, we're using k here. Um, and you put it through a function, and n things are going to come out where n is greater than k. And, and m things are going to be what most people call the parity. 
Um, does that make sense to everyone? And, and feel free to stop me at any point if you uh, need a clarification or you're confused about something. I want to make sure everyone sort of walks away with something from this. Um, there's two main types of erasure codes, systematic and non-systematic. Systematic basically means the encoded output symbols, so those M things, contain the original data, right? So if I use a systematic code, if I have, if I can get the K data pieces back, I don't need to do any decoding. I can just read it. Um, on the other side, there's non-systematic codes, and that is when the encoded output does not contain the input symbols. So in that case, when you get K or however many you need together, you need to actually put it through a decoder to actually get the original data back. Typically in storage, I, th there's a few examples of using non-systematic codes, but in general, um, we use systematic codes. Um, you know, most, most RAID uh, uh, schemes use systematic codes, j just because all you have to do is, if, if you get the original data back, you know, your work's kind of done. Um, what we call a code word is a set of related data and parity. And these are related via uh, a set of parity equations. Um, so as an example, I have a function, I'm going to feed the data, and it's going to spit out a code word. And in the systematic case, I get data chunks and parity chunks. Um, there's also layout. So flat horizontal basically means each encoded symbol is mapped to a single device. And this is, again, typical of traditional RAID geometries. Um, well, I, I guess actually not necessarily. Um, for in, in some cases, it's, it's typical. Um, there's things called array codes that have both horizontal and vertical layout. So if you've heard of something called even odd um, out of IBM or RDP out of NetApp, those actually have both horizontal and vertical layout, which means many symbols from the code word can map to a single device. And finally, um, there's MDS and non-MDS codes. MDS means maximum distance separable. And basically, all that really means is of the n chunks, all it takes is any k to recover the original file. With non-MDS codes, k chunks might not be sufficient to do that. So you actually might need a little bit more to recover the original file. The one thing you get from non-MDS codes is, like I was saying before, you can optimize for reconstruction. So it might be more expensive to recover the entire file, but it's actually cheaper to recover a single chunk. And, and I'll go through an example later. It sort of sets that. Um, I'm going to skip over this to save on time because it looks like we're a little bit over, but there's all many variations of codes. Um, so I'm going to walk through uh, a, a simple example using Reed Solomon systematic horizontal layout. So in, in, in this example, um, we have n is 8, so we have 8 total chunks that we'd be writing out. Um, we have k data, and, uh, or sorry, 5 data and 3 parity. So in this case, uh, the nice property read Solomon is it can tolerate the loss of any m things, so any n minus k things. And the overhead is actually also optimal. So the overhead is just going to be n over k. Anybody have any questions? Is this like, does everyone already know all this stuff and I'm just sort of going through stuff everybody knows? No? Hey, yes? OK, awesome. Um, <laughs> So uh, j just a quick example, let's pretend these are disks, and let's pretend that the, you know, we've, we've sort of broken up the disks into um, uh, bite-sized elements. So there's going to be much more than this. So j just to kind of let it set in uh, some of the terminology, a code word is, like I said before, a related set of data and parities. Okay, so here's, here's, where, here's where things are going to get real. So I, there's going to be a slide or two slides of math. So I hope pe it, nobody like start walks off. They're like, screw you. I don't want to go through this. 
Um, and, and the main reason I do this is uh, usually these usually erasure codes are treated as a black box. You just feed stuff in and you get stuff out, and, and everyone's happy. I, I don't really like treating things as black boxes. I really like to understand what's going on behind the scenes. So I'm just going to try to do this with as simple of an example as I can come up with. So in its purest form, Reed Solomon is basically just oversampling a polynomial. So basically, in, in, in the, like the example I was saying before, as, since we have n total things, you're basically oversampling a single polynomial n times. So I, I, does everyone remember what a polynomial is? I hope everyone remembers what a polynomial is. OK, awesome. Um, so in, in, in the case the, of, the, of the polynomial oversampling, the coefficients are the data, right? And I'm going to sample this polynomial at n points. So we're going to go ahead and map this over to a matrix. I, I hope I still kind of have everyone here. So e where, where each row is uh, an evaluation of the polynomial. So in this case, I have five data and n total things. So this is a non-systematic Reed-Solomon. So we need to map this over to a different matrix to make it systematic so that we actually have some of the you know, all the original symbols in, in the output. So um, another thing I should mention is a property of this is any k, uh, k by k submatrix of this is invertible. And that becomes important during the uh, decoding step. So um, if, if you remember from linear algebra, if you took linear algebra, I can take this matrix and do elementary operations, and the result's going to have the same rank. So rank basically is the same thing as what I said before. Any k by k submatrix is invertible. So I can transform this matrix into that. And now I have a systematic Reed-Solomon code. And I'll map this in the encoding example so it'll make more sense. Am I still holding it? Is everyone holding on here? Yeah. Uh, all right. <laughs> OK, so let, let's go through the encoding process. So we have our systematic matrix here. And we, uh, that vector there is our original data. And all we're doing is multiplying our original data by this matrix to get our code word. And as you see here, when I, multi when I do the matrix vector multiplication, when I multiply that vector by that first row, I just get D0. So I get the data in the clear. So that's, that, that, that's basically what makes it systematic. Um, a few things to note. Um, all operations are done in a Gawa field. I, I could go through that today, but I think it's well beyond the scope of this talk. Um, and it was even more mathy than any of this stuff. Um, if anyone wants to, it, it, and I guess here's another thing, if anyone wants to talk about any of this stuff at a whiteboard during the week, just grab me, and I'd love to talk about this, if, if you do want to know. Um, and like I said before, with the systematic matrix, any k by k submatrix is invertible. And that's going to become important when we decode. So suppose we lose three drives. So in our code word, we've lost those three things. Um, how would we decode to be able to get the original data back? Well, like I, like I was saying before, any k by k submatrix is invertible. So what we can do is we can remove three rows from this matrix. The result's going to be a 5 by 5 matrix. I invert it because it's invertible. And if, uh, if you remember, again, from linear algebra, if you multiply the inverse by the original, you're going to get Wait, you're, you're going to get the original data back, right? So basically what we do is we take the remaining elements, multiply it by the inverse, and that's going to give us the data back, right? Because this equals 1. Does that make sense? All right. 
So that's what, that's what we just did there, right? <laughs> Boom, decoded. And yeah, so I don't have to go into too much more detail on that. Okay, so now we have a, a, an example of uh, how Reed Solomon works. Um, one of the um, one of the disadvantages of Reed Solomon is it it requires k available things to reconstruct any element. So in the example I just gave, you know, you know, every time you reconstruct even a single lost thing, you need k things. So in that in that example, you need five. Um, due to this, in large-scale systems, I think people learn that over time in a large-scale system, you end up having to ship a lot of stuff over the network uh, for doing reconstructions with codes like Reed Solomon. So, I don't know, like maybe like 10 years ago or so, maybe even sooner than that, the coding theory community really grabbed onto this whole like minimized uh, repair cost thing. And I'm not sure if you guys heard of them, but there, there's things called regenerating codes, Lo uh, locally repairable codes, I think that was out of Microsoft, uh, flat XOR codes, which is some of the work uh, I did when I was at uh, HP Labs. Um, and basically what these do is they trade space efficiency for more efficient construction. So where Reed Solomon was actually, it's, it, it's um, space optimal. With some of these codes that minimize reconstruction costs, you pay a little bit more upfront, so you might add a few more parities, um, so that you, you actually need to read off less disks when you get disk failures. So I'm going to walk through a quick example. Did, did someone have a question? No, I just heard something then. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm severely jet lagged, so I'm probably like hallucinating right now anyway. Um, okay, so let's go through a simple ex example of a code that does really well uh, local repair. So in, in the case of this code, same, same uh, number of data, same number of parity. Um, or not same number of parity. We have four parity in this case, so we've added a little bit more. And these are the parity equations, right? So P0 equals the XOR of zero, data 0, 1, and 3, right? Everyone kind of understands that, right? Yeah, hopefully. So if I lose D0, um, I don't have to read off K things. So in this case, I guess K was 6. I actually only have to read off 3. And you could also do other interesting things. I have two equations I can use here, and I can do like really interesting parallel reconstructions as well. And in this case, I end up paying a little bit more in space to actually save on reconstruction. And these codes tend, would probably make a lot more sense in an archival use case, where you don't have a lot of reads coming in, and your common workload is basically just repairing stuff. That makes sense? All right. Okay, so a uh, quick advertisement here, because we're running low on time. Um, so, uh, like I was saying before, I kind of um, started working with the Swift community more at the library level, and it was to create uh, Python bindings for uh, some of the lower level C libraries I was working on. Um, and, the, and basically, that, what came of that was what we call PyECLib. And the goal of PyECLib was basically to just make a pluggable, easy to use EC library for Python. And the primary use case is Swift. I, th there's a few other people I know that are using it for stuff, but Swift is our main, you know, it's the main, main user of it. Um, so originally we had all the logic of PyCLib, you know, we did everything in, in the Python C API and that turned out to just be a monolithic just terror. So we actually pulled all the smarts out into a C library called Liberation Code, and, uh, which actually I'll talk about on the next slide. Uh, but but the, the, the basic thing with Liberation Code was uh, separation of concerns from um, 
doing language-specific translation from Python into C, and then Liberation Code actually does all the smart stuff. So it, it, it does all the pluggable stuff with the backend libraries. There's some value-added stuff like doing checksums and other helper functions. Um, so, yeah. That's pretty much it. Is Liberation Code like a build dependency, or is it just a shared library that Python uh, It will be a build dependency, yeah. It, oh, so class if Liberation Code was a build dependency, and it is. So if if you install PyCLib, you need Liberation Code. But it, yeah, but is it a separate library? Like oh, it's a separate it's library. Dynamic, Complete, yeah, 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 it's a dynamic library. Completely separate. Yeah. Yeah, my favorite part about PyCLib is I can treat it like a black box. <laughs> <laughs> and so can the rest of us working on the Swift side. <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. Okay, so let's let's wrap up and see how this ties back into Swift. If you can click for me there, Sorry. Kevin. Okay, so first a couple of the design considerations. Some of these are, um, I don't know, probably pretty obvious. Go ahead and click twice so we get the whole thing up here, and then we'll make sure we finish. One more. Um, yeah, right there is good. So um, like I said pretty pretty obvious. Good software engineering practice here, right? The the first one actually was a design decision that we spent a good deal amount of time um, discussing last year. Um, with uh, with really all the members of the community that are participating. And that was kind of, do we do the erasure code work in line at the proxy as the data comes flowing through, or do we let the data come flow through and then we do it as a background um, activity on the storage node? Um, so a lot of work uh, involved in looking at the pros and cons, and we actually have a prototype um, of, of, of both styles uh, available. And we have gone with the, uh, the inline version where we do the erasure code work at the proxies. Um, uh, actually, back up one. Oh, sorry. A couple other quick ones uh, is, is probably obvious. Building on storage policies, right? The whole reason we sort of got diverted from EC for a while was to do this storage policy work so that we could easily extend uh, Swift with EC. Uh, and then here's the, really the common sense one. Really keep it simple and leverage current architecture. Um, and a good example is when I went over the ring stuff. Like I said, we haven't changed any of the ring code, right? And yet we're doing something completely different with the data as it streams through the system. So that's... So that's pretty cool. Okay, now let's flip to the um, the architecture slide here, and this is now with EC. Um, so you can see the sort of pinkish colored stuff is really the main areas that we're touching to get the EC stuff to work. Um, so up at the proxy, um, really I bucketized all of the controller uh, into one box, right? So all of the controller classes um, are touched with EC, mainly the object side, um, because that's where the you know the data is actually flowing through. But there's a lot of a lot of work going on there, a lot of changes, and, and again, if anybody's interested in the details, Friday is our design session where we're going to uh, dive into whoever wants to dive into what. Um, and then, of course, PyECLib running um, up on the proxies to do the encoding and decoding as the data streams in and out. Okay, now down um, on the storage nodes uh, at, the, at the object server, um, lots of work at the object server. The three main areas uh, are uh, S-Sync, which is an alternate method of doing synchronization, right? So the original one uh, is, is R-Sync, and now the ability to do S-Sync uh, is, I think we're calling it production as of uh, Icehouse, right? So EC is leveraging a lot of that code, right? It's not doing replication, but it's leveraging a lot of that code and a lot of that logic um, to facilitate communications between the storage nodes as it decides what to reconstruct and how to reconstruct it. Then we've got this big monster down here called the EC Reconstructor that will undoubtedly be a topic of discussion this Friday. Um, that's, a, that's kind of a beast, so there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. Um, and then, and then PyECLib um, with its plugins down here on the storage nodes. So I'm, I'm hoping somebody has a question about that piece right there. It's like, hey, Paul, didn't you just say that it was all done in the proxies? 
Is that the question? Yeah. All right, good question. <laughs> Fantastic. You get a free T-shirt. Um, so it, it is true. All of our EC work for incoming and outgoing data is done at the proxy. But when the reconstructor needs to rebuild an object, uh, it's done at the storage nodes. Right? So anytime there's the need to do a reconstruction, um, the proxy is not involved. So we actually are doing EC work um, on all of the nodes in the cluster, taking advantage um, of all the CPU horsepower that we've got. And then um, down here, we've got um, some changes around the metadata um, associated with EC. And uh, uh, there's a lot of interesting details there, too, that I would encourage you to come to our uh, design session Friday, and we can get into all the, the nitty gritty. Um, but there is a lot of devil in the details in the object node implementations. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so the Clay's question was, what did I mean by the, uh, the metadata? Isn't it just the storage policy index? And that's, that's got to be a, a setup, because I know Clay knows. <laughs> but um, uh, the, an example of some of the metadata changes um, sort of goes to the concept of Swift is built around storing complete objects, right? So today, when you store an object, uh, all of the metadata that is associated with that object sort of travels with it and makes it into the container database um, all in one, right? It's, there's only one copy of the object. When we talk about erasure code, that object comes into the proxy, and now it's busted up into a whole bunch of chunks, right, like what Kevin was showing. Um, now we've got metadata associated with the chunks, as well as metadata associated with the original object. And we've got to figure out how to store all that stuff efficiently and make sure it's properly um, you know, replicated, for lack of a better term, but so that it's properly represented throughout the cluster, and that the container update that goes with that object reflects the object and not one of the fragments of the object. So a lot of little nitty-gritty details and, and tracking of who goes with what and where everything lies and all that kind of stuff. That's what I meant by the additional metadata changes and complexities that maybe you wouldn't think about. You're just thinking, oh, yeah, it's just container metadata. But it's... Uh, a lot of the time in the, in the object controller. Yeah, a lot of it is in the object controller as well as Clay's comment. This, this, this slide is a couple months old. <laughs> we've, done, we've done work since this. <laughs> Okay, so let's see. Next slide, and then and then this is sort of a final putting it all together. Uh, you know, what does it what does it sort of look like? Hopefully, you can imagine what this animation is going to look like. Um, go ahead and click once there, Kevin. So you can see, same as before, an object comes in, hits the proxy, and now this gets fancy. Ready? Oh, check that out. <laughs> so we've encoded the data, and uh, yeah, and we've encoded the data, and now we spread the fragments out um, throughout the cluster again, based on the rules that were set up when the ring was built with each ring location now meaning truly a location and not a copy of that object. So now we've got fragments scattered throughout uh, all over the land here, uh, and the application comes to do a get. Now you can see we're going to get a subset of the fragments. Um, now we've got different ways we can actually do this, and we haven't bottomed out on the default implementation, but what I'm trying to show here is we don't need to get n fragments. We can get less than that and still recover the original data. There's trade-offs whether we wanted to go out and get all n and use a subset depending on which came in fast or whether we want to save on network bandwidth and, and just get the minimum amount. And if we can't get them all, we have to wait and get another one. So um, lot, lot, again, more details there. But for the purposes of the example, we only pulled back three. And then the decoder, go ahead and wait for it. Oh, yeah. And now we decoded the data, right? So, so we're going to reconstruct it. And a, a fine point here is uh, this is systematic encoding. So if we've got the data chunks, um, we don't necessarily actually have to decode. We'll still feed those data chunks into PyECLib, but it doesn't have to do the math. It'll basically just concatenate the chunks for us. So if we're smart about picking which subset of fragments we, uh, we get on the git, um, then we minimize uh, the overhead and reconstruction because it's basically a concatenation. 
Okay, now we've got our, for more information, links, uh, a lot of good stuff here. We, we do all of our um, really day-to-day -day tracking of who's doing what and what the status of each individual task is um, on Trello. It's just a, a, a pretty easy to use discussion board. So there's the link. It's, it's generally within a few days of being up to date. So anybody wants to check it out or participate, um, that's the link. Uh, we do have blueprints, but again, most of our work is, is tracked and done on Trello. Um, and then there's the, uh, uh, the code itself. We are off um, on a development branch, so we're not in master. We do keep in sync with master, but we do all of our work um, off to the side because uh, it's big and hairy and complicated. Um, the link to PyECLib and the link to Liberatia code. So with that, I think we're about out of time, but if anybody wants to come up and, and see Kevin or I for questions, I think we're out of time. I see a hand, but I don't know. Does somebody have a, a watch? Are we out? Three oh eight. Okay, so we have time for we have time for a, a short question. Uh, go ahead. How to scale up or scale down the Swift ring? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The um, when when you initially create your ring, there's some guidance provided in the existing documentation that that sort of has you thinking about growth in the future. So you add or remove devices. It, there's no difference between triple replication and erasure code from, from that impact. Yeah, you still have to rebalance. And the reconstructor in, in the EC software architecture will take care of the, um, the movement of the data after the ring has been rebalanced and distributed to the storage nodes. So it's very analogous to how replication works, except instead of making copies, we're either just moving stuff around or we're reconstructing and moving stuff around. Good question, thanks. Couple more? So, um, is this microphone working? Hello? Yep. Great believer in microphones. This is Alex McDonald from NetApp here. Just a quick question about erasure codes and the math. Sorry, but this is actually really simple. Erasure codes assume that when you're reconstructing the data, especially from a minimal set, that the transmission and the storage of the data is perfect. One of the issues with erasure coding, as I see here, is we're dealing with imperfect devices. Although network transmission is pretty reliable, device storage is notoriously unreliable. And reconstructing, for instance, a piece of data from a five and three scheme out of five pieces of data, you run the risk of actually reconstructing crap, to be quite honest. Checksums. And how do you the operate place. the checksums at the node level? Yeah, so the client uh, computes checksum. Um, we get checks checksums yeah, we, all over the place. We, we sort of, through the entire path, we've computed checksums from the client in the proxy stored in metadata per fragment as well as per object, transmitted over the wire to the storage nodes where it's checked again and stored in the extended attributes of the file system. And when each fragment archive is read, it's checked against its stored checksum before it's sent back to the proxy to be reconstructed. Where's the checksum? In which case held? we have the final checksum on the original object to make sure that matches. In the header, in the header of the yeah. fragment. In the Plus same we have a prerequisite that only perfect devices. The same devices blocks or separate blocks from the header. Uh, we, I mean, it's the same file, right? Thanks. Yeah, yeah. So if somebody didn't hear Clay's comment, he just said that, uh, yeah, it's the same checksum scheme that's used today with, with replication, but we did have to add a few steps here and there because of the, the fragmentation of the object. Thanks, though. Good question. Hi, Stephen Lang. Uh, so Swift is eventually consistent. How does that change with erasure coding? It does not. 
So it, it still it just writes out what it can, and then uh, does it sync the the rest of the erasure code and, and compute it after with words? It's the, isn't the current policy K plus one, and then that's tunable as well. Yeah. So you know, there's a. Um, I think that's kind of a common misconception about what eventually consistent means. It does not mean that we um, store some of it and then tell you it's done and then store the rest later. That kind of may be what happens in some scenarios, but um, really what it means is that the synchronization of your metadata and your data um, aren't going to be guaranteed all the time. Eventually they will be consistent. But just like with triple replication, we're not going to tell the client that a put has worked until we get a successful number of puts that we define as a quorum. Right? So until we know that the data is durable, we don't tell the client you know, go ahead and be on your merry way. So all of the math and all of the pudding does happen before your client gets um, an accept. So it's not, still not strongly consistent, but again, the terminology is a little sometimes fuzzily used. All right, thanks. Does that answer the question? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Okay, thanks everybody.